twinkle, twinkle, little pal. Oh, I wonder where you are. Up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. Twinkle, twinkle, go little. You're listening to Trusted Words, a podcast telling authentic stories from real-life situations. My name is Ethan, and I'm learning how to become a better storyteller through this project. My wife, Molly, helps me with the direction and editing process. What's up, y'all? And I frequently include my son, Danny, <laughs> and my daughter, Harper. We have a dog, Samson, who weighs 85 pounds. <laughs> this is the second episode in which I talk about my cancer treatment at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. I strongly recommend you listen to the previous episode before this one. My parents have been driving the storytelling so far. In the last episode, they described the order of events that led up to my cancer diagnosis and then also what it was like during the first month of my treatment. In this episode, we'll continue the story. Let's dive in. Let me take you back to last year, August 2017. That sound you hear is rain. My dad and I are at St. Jude in Memphis for my annual checkup. We're walking through the parking lot and regretting my choice of a parking space. This is the parking lot we should have come to, it looks like. Yeah. We arrive late in the afternoon on a Thursday and check in at the front desk. They ask for my medical record number and ask me if it's okay to call my name over the intercom. If they need to contact you from the clinic today, is it okay for them to greet you on the intercom? Or yeah. Do you want them to call you on your cell phone? Uh, the intercom's fine. There's some pretty typical paperwork that needs to be filled out. They also think maybe they can get me in earlier than expected. And if it's okay with you, since this one's not till four, I'm gonna try to contact the triage nurses and see uh-huh. if they wanna scoop you up before. Perfect. I call her. Okay. She, I'm pretty sure, I'm almost like 99% sure she'll be able to get you early. Okay, so. sounds good. Then they have me sit down in the waiting room. At this point, it's a pretty typical doctor's appointment. I go in for some blood work, meet with a couple of doctors, all very routine. The only thing that's not routine is that I've had to have an MRI every year that looks at my hips and knees. Some of the chemotherapy and or steroids that were part of my treatment could have caused damage to my bones, so my doctors have wanted to take a look each year to check that. I had that MRI the Friday morning after we got into town. Usually they schedule it pretty early in the morning, and then we walk across campus to discuss the results of my MRI with an orthopedic doctor. Here's my dad and I discussing the paperwork I received after my MRI. And so it has like the technical information and findings. Oh, okay. Yeah. Said there are multiple areas of abnormal signal intensity scattered throughout the bilateral femurs and the bilateral tibia tibias. They were low in signal intensity on T1 sequences 
an increased signal intensity on stir, so none of that makes sense to me. There are lesions <laughs> scattered throughout both tibial shafts, fairly symmetric, moderate size lesions. We meet with the orthopedic doctor, who's actually the chief of surgery for the orthopedic division. He brings with him a crew of about six other people that huddle around him in a small doctor's office to meet with us. You just kind of get the sense that he's a big deal. He's holding a tablet in one hand and reviews the MRI, maybe two hours after the scans were taken of my body. Let's just take a step back and marvel at how incredible this technology is. So, an MRI stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. MRI scanners use strong magnetic fields, radio waves, and field gradients to generate images of the organs or bones in the body. When you go in for an MRI, they make absolutely sure you're not wearing any metal. I even have to take off my wedding ring because of the strong magnets. It takes about 40 minutes for them to get all the images, and when you look at them, they're basically like slices of your body shown in black and white. You can move backward or forward to view the different slices of images. These images are what the orthopedic doctor shows me in his office. They must be instantaneously uploaded to my medical records so that in the time it took for my dad and I to walk across campus, the doctor has already reviewed the images and he's ready to assess them and discuss with us. This blows my mind that technology has come this far already and that I get to be a patient at one of the leading cancer hospitals for children. Speaking of that, I am an adult now, and even though I'm over the age of 18, I'll continue to be a St. Jude patient for life. That's just what this hospital does, because they continue to do research on their patients to evaluate the long-term effects of their cancer treatments. After that meeting, less than 24 hours after we arrived in Memphis, my appointments are finished and we get back on the road to head home. The ease and simplicity of this trip is never taken for granted. It's an echo of a painful experience that's now long gone. I'm thankful that I don't have any remaining physical issues to deal with now. My body is completely healed. Most days, I get the luxury of forgetting that I even had cancer. But every so often, it's good to go back and remember what happened. Each time that I do that, I'm filled with emotions of gratitude and worship towards the God who created me and healed me. So if we pick up where we left off in our last episode, I was living down in Memphis for the first couple months of my treatment. My mom would be with me during the week, and my dad would spend the weekend with me. We were staying at the Ronald McDonald house, which was just down the street from the hospital. As you may know, I do have three siblings. My brother and sisters obviously needed to continue school and daily life in our hometown, which was eight hours away. Here's what happened to them during this time. Yeah, there was... Um Initially, they went to the McCord's house nearby. We may have had them stay with friends a little bit, but I believe that was, oh, and the Keithleys helped out, I remember that. But there was only, I guess, about four or five days where we had to totally cover uh, their needs. And then from that point on, from what I remember, either Dad was home or I was home. And uh, someone at church came up to me. They had had a friend go through this, and they said that we were going to need help 
from people at church, not just meals, but for other things as well, child care and things like that. And they suggested we get a coordinator. So just like at church, we have the sunshine ministry that whenever people have a baby or have surgery or something, they coordinate meals and flowers for those people. This was sort of an extension of that. They said, for your specific case, we recommend that you just have your own team. And so um, we found uh, Melissa Juvenile was willing to take that over in terms of being like the main coordinator and, and the point person. And then we had to let her know what our needs were and then she would find the people to fill those needs. So we took advantage of that as much as we could, but there was still, and like you said, we were waiting around a lot, so it, it actually worked out for me to coordinate things for part of my time that I was spent um, just waiting. Uh, of course, when I was home, a lot more details um, were just sort of naturally taken care of because that was my normal thing to do. When Dad was there, it was it was harder. Um, he had, you know, he needed me to give him an agenda of who needed to be where, when, and that kind of thing. So, um, so I was either, you know, sort of helping him figure it out, or I was helping a team member figure out what to do. Yeah, so so we really played uh, single parent um, back and forth. So I would teach my classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, so after the initial, I think it was two weeks, we were down there together. And then I know Brian and Katrina came down, I think, and then I came back to, to, uh, uh, to teach. So I would teach on, you know, Tuesday and Thursday. Thursday, I'd hop in a, a car, usually with somebody. Frequently, it was Pastor Dave. And then um, he would drive mom back from Memphis back home. So okay. he'd spend a short amount of time, hour or two, uh, and then it'd be back on the road. I'd be your weekend dad. And then... <laughs> <laughs> uh, it almost felt like felt like we were divorced, right? I was I was your weekend dad and uh, took care of you on the weekends, and then you know Mondays um, and Thursdays we do this uh, travel back and forth. So I basically just had to take care of uh, everybody's schedule back up here Tuesdays and Thursdays and teach my classes. But what I found during that time was that I really didn't like being a single parent. It it was hard. All the things that mom would do, like give Samantha a bath, take Samantha to ballet. I just remember that was that stuck in my mind so much of trying to get leotards on a I forget how old Samantha was, but on a little girl was something I never had to deal with. Mom always took her to ballet class and got her ready in the dressing room. And here I am, the only dad. It's only moms that are in their dressing room. So I felt really weird uh, doing that to begin with. And then I felt totally incompetent to try and get these leotards stretched over uh, her her legs and uh, everything uh, set uh 
the way that she uh, needed to uh, to go to ballet class. So, yeah, and and mom did. She wrote me out an exact script of hour by hour, day by day. This is what I'm supposed to do from Tuesday to Thursday. So Tuesdays through Thursdays were were you know jam packed when I was back up here, and then the pace of life would slow mostly because it was a weekend and you didn't get as much treatment you didn't see doctors and so forth so it was less fast-paced when I was back down in Memphis. Now in our last episode I talked about how interesting all of the details are to me now since I'm 10 years out from being cancer-free and about seven years out from receiving chemotherapy. Some of the most interesting parts of my treatment to me now are the blips on the radar, the things that went wrong. But when I use the word interesting to describe these events, that's not the first word that my parents would pick. I I don't know that I would have classified anything as interesting. There were times where there was, you know, there was the time when you, um, I forget what symptom you had in Memphis. Oh, bad headache. And so just trying to figure out what's going on. Um, you also one night had a real bad pain in your leg that was similar to your initial symptoms, and we had to go find out what was going on. And I believe you just had like uh, you were having a reaction to the one chemo. So I remember those things not being boring, um, but I wouldn't classify them as interesting. <laughs> it was more like I went into I went into panic mode basically when those things were happening. Like, oh no, something's wrong. We've got to figure out what's going. We don't going want on. anything interesting. <laughs> yeah, here I'll let Dad share from his perspective. Yeah, I think Mom's point about the interesting things were interesting things were the things that went wrong. So we didn't want anything interesting to go on. The less interesting it was, um, uh, so your seizure was probably the biggest um, thing. You had a... And his allergic reaction. Uh, yeah, so the, the two things would be you had a, um, uh, a seizure and you had an allergic reaction to one of the chemotherapies. So... The chemotherapy part was when we were still down in Memphis and you were in the treatment room and everything was just, you know, like they had been previously. Everything was boring and, and normal. If you'll remember from our last episode, I described how boring receiving chemotherapy can be. You're sitting there with a bag of chemotherapy slowly running through your system. Sometimes this can take hours. This is what my dad is describing here regarding the treatment room. This time around, I was receiving a new chemotherapy drug, and a few minutes into the process, I started to feel dizzy and had trouble breathing. And you just said, I kind of feel funny, and I looked over at you, and you looked kind of like pale and white and so I called the nurse right away and I said I think something's wrong um, yeah. and she took one look at you and stopped the medicine and then uh, a couple nurses came o- rushing over um, to uh, that and I think they gave you something kind of like uh, um, you know anti-allergy you know uh, drugs and so forth and then Probably within a half hour, maybe even sooner, Dr. Sandlin, your main doctor, was there. 
and talking to us and and uh, asked you what symptoms you were feeling and you were having trouble breathing and and um, uh, stuff and so he determined yeah you're having an allergic reaction to this chemotherapy and it's one of the main chemotherapies that they use during that stage of treatment so it's really problematic that you were allergic to that one because um, that was one of the main chemos they were going to use in this treatment. Yeah. So they actually had to get a drug from Europe, which was similar in makeup, but wasn't available in the United States. So, But because St. Jude's is a research facility, they have access to drugs that other hospitals uh, wouldn't have access to. So they were able to get this drug flown in from Europe for you to take on this stage of your treatment. And that was the shots. That that drug that Dad's talking about is the shots that you then... That this one was the one that was in the leg. Okay. Okay, so, and I don't know if you remember those. Oh yeah, I remember those. These shots I am all too familiar with. If you're squeamish with shots and needles, I'm giving you a chance here to skip over this part. Consider this your warning. So, these shots were three large needles that they used to administer chemotherapy into my body through my leg muscles. Three needles required three nurses, so usually I had to wait around for all three nurses to be available. To minimize the amount of time that I'm in pain, they give me the three shots all at once. Two in one leg, one in the other. They count down from three, and then the chemo goes in. You would just get three shots in the leg versus getting that intravenous. And then you had your other shots, which were for your blood clotting issue. This blood clotting issue started happening in April 2008. I had two blood clots in the sinuses on the sides of my head, which obviously wasn't good. They were very reluctant to send you home from Memphis because you had this issue going on. But um, according to the timeline, I believe they kept you maybe an extra weekend or something beyond the point at which you were supposed to return back home for the first time. So this issue developed right at the end of that initial seven weeks that was part of the schedule to be in Memphis, and then you were scheduled to come back. Then this uh, blood clotting in your brain happened right there at the end. So they were very reluctant to let you go, and I think kept you a couple extra days. But finally felt that things, you know, that they had the dosage figured out for the blood thinner. So they let you go. They didn't tell you not to drive. So it was pretty much you were fine to come back and just do your normal thing. They had mentioned something about when they when they initially found out that you had this going on, they said it was in your motor, the the area of your brain that controls your motor reflexes or something like that. And so I was concerned that maybe something could happen. Um, uh, I was worried maybe more along the lines of a stroke. Um, And I'm not sure where I got that idea. If they told me that or if I just had that in my mind from something. But I don't remember being overly worried about it. I just remember sort of wondering whether that could happen. 
They did end up sending me home on April 7th, and I was there for a grand total of two days before I had a seizure. This was one of the most bizarre and unpleasant experiences that I've ever had. I remember using my computer, clicking the mouse, and all of a sudden my right index finger just started twitching. Even when I wasn't using my computer, my finger was still moving uncontrollably. Eventually it stopped, so I didn't think anything of it. But later on that evening, it started up again, and then things progressed pretty quickly. First it was my finger that I couldn't control, then my arm started moving up in the air, and I couldn't help it. I could feel the lack of control moving up my body to my head, and my upper body was thrown backward. And then I'm pretty sure I blacked out because I don't remember anything after that point. It's such a surreal out-of-body experience to not have that control over what your muscles are doing. So then um, we, we were home, and you had the seizure, and at first I thought you were having a stroke. But then I was able to, you know, to sort of figure out what was going on even before the paramedics got there. Oh, this is a seizure, not a stroke. But at first I did panic and think, oh, no, this could be a really serious sort of neurological thing. Um, and so I had that sort of mom moment where I was like, oh, no, I've lost my son. <laughs> you know, it was sort of what I felt just for a brief, you know, moment. Um, but that's, that's a terrible feeling. Uh, it's just a terrible feeling thinking that there might be neurological damage. But then, you know, the, the seizure did not last long, and you came to within, you know, less than a minute, and um, you, were, you were fine by the time the paramedics got there. And um, so they were asking you questions just to sort of screen for what had happened, and they were able to say it was a seizure and, you know whisked you away to the hospital. So the first few months of my treatment, I was living in Memphis, and then I finally got to come home for an extended amount of time at the end of April. I continued to be treated at the St. Jude Affiliate Clinic in Peoria, Illinois. It wasn't until mid-July that I had to go back to Memphis for another intensive treatment, which is called Reinduction One. While I was down there, I started making YouTube videos for fun. Here's some of the videos that I made during a span of three days. We are at Steak and Shake, uh, reinduction day one. We just got our beautiful strawberry milkshakes. Say hi, Dad. Hi. So we made it to St. Jude's, but apparently we're 15 minutes late for an appointment. Yay. But it wasn't our fault. They told us originally we were supposed to be here 5.30, and they changed it to 4.15, and then they just called and said, oh, you're supposed to be here a half hour before the appointment. So. We're at Kroger now. It's about 8 o'clock. Um, Look at all the groceries. We, we're only halfway through the store. Yeah, we haven't even made it to the freezer section yet, so that's where we get half our stuff. Uh, it's reinduction day two. I was supposed to have a lumbar puncture and a long med room visit, which is basically chemo for three hours, uh, but my counts were too low. So they decided to cancel all that, and instead I'm going to start reinduction on Monday. So we're at breakfast. 
Hey, the good news is you got breakfast. If you had a lumbar puncture, you wouldn't have eaten until like one or two in the afternoon. So you gotta count your blessings. This is true. Dad's the optimist today, and I'm playing the part of the pessimist, so. All right, we're still at uh, Mud Island. Um, we're in a canoe, if you can see. I'm not sure, but hopefully I aimed the camera right. And what exactly are we in? Are we in the Mississippi right now, or? We're in a harbor off the Mississippi, right. and it goes on for about two and a half miles along Mud Island. If we go north, he said we'd hit the Mississippi. We rented it, this canoe for an hour, but he said there's going to be no one else here, so we can take as long as we like, pretty much. So, that's it. For the next two years, I continued to receive chemotherapy in Peoria, Memphis. My mom and dad would drive me just about every Friday to receive my chemotherapy treatments in Peoria. I had checkups in Memphis about every three to six months. I learned a lot during this time, but probably one of the biggest lessons was just to be thankful for every moment that I have on this earth and to not waste this life that I've been given. Life is a gift. One of the most influential books that I read during my treatment was John Piper's Life is a Vapor. He quotes the Bible in the first chapter when he says, You do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Um, I think that my biggest lesson that I learned through this is that it became more, I guess, heart knowledge rather than just head knowledge that there's a lot of suffering in the world. And, you know, I didn't just see it from our own perspective, but just seeing other people, I feel like it enabled me to really see what people go through. Living in Memphis helped me to, to just see with new eyes a lot of things. I mean, just even in the poor neighborhoods to see people who were really struggling and a lot, of, a lot of people who were different from us that were patients as well. You know, some people really sacrificed a lot, basically moved to Memphis, got new jobs, you know, in order for their children to be treated because they didn't have the same flexibility that we had. Yeah, I think it just, when you don't go through a big crisis like that, your whole life and then it happens to you it just changes you you see things a whole lot different in terms of yeah. you know the world and yeah. and, it, and then you know just learning again to, to to trust God through each situation and to wait and see how he's going to work things out I was also just really really thankful for day 15 I believe it was of your treatment um not sure I have that exactly right, but um, that's basically when they said that all the cancer was gone from your body. And um, I was just thankful that with how fast you got sick, it's the same kind of cancer that they can get rid of really fast as well. From the beginning, I had a peace, you know, just because all that cancer was gone, you know, and I really felt like the worst was over at that point. Yeah, I think it was hard watching you go through what you had to go um, through. Uh, there were lots of times that I would have 
you know, gladly gone through the physical pain not to have to watch you go through it. Um, uh, on the other end, so that was, um, you know, difficult to, to watch. I think in terms of spiritual lessons um, that that I saw was really God breaking down my pride because I like to be self-sufficient and do things and life just couldn't work without um, our church family and friends who picked up the slack from you know meals and transportation and doing all the things that we could normally do for ourselves but just couldn't do for ourselves and I was you know, I felt like, oh, I want to repay somebody or I want to give back. And there was no possible way over that long period of time, the number of people who did things for us that we could ever repay uh, all those kindnesses that people did. So it really spoke to me in terms of my, uh, my pride and wanting, you know, wanting to be the giver rather than the receiver. So being on the receiving end for that long was important and I remember you know mom and I are planners we like to plan things out and have things figured out and when you were going through treatment there was lots of times that we couldn't plan more than an hour in advance we because so much was up in the air depending on what results came back and what you know what the doctor said so people would ask us normal and innocent questions like oh what what hotel are you uh, booked at or what what are you doing tomorrow and that was just like a foreign concept of no we can't think in terms of planning you know that far out we're just like going hour by hour and day by day and so that was a was a shock because i think it taught me that you know planning is part of control like you're trying to control your life and and ultimately God's in control. And so this was kind of a pulling back the curtain to say, nope, I'm in control. You really can have things in mind, but um, but you can't control and plan out uh, your life in that, in that way. My story has a happy ending, and that I survived, and 10 years later, I don't think about a whole lot of this very often. I'm able to live my life, provide for my family, and once a year, check in at St. Jude just to make sure my body is okay. I feel great, and I thank God for healing me and giving me this experience so that I can be thankful for every day I'm given on this earth. After this short music break, I have some closing thoughts. I hope you'll stick around.
It was because of my cancer that I stayed in my hometown of Bloomington Normal for college. It was because I went to ISU that I met my wife, Molly. It was because Molly and I got married that Danny and Harper are now a part of our family. I wouldn't change any part of my past. But even though my story continues on, many kids are not as fortunate. I had a coworker at Panera in Bloomington whose son was diagnosed with cancer as well, and he was also treated at St. Jude. He was four years old when he died of neuroblastoma. I attended his funeral. Some days, I wonder why he was taken and not me. There are kids that don't make it, but St. Jude is full of people who are passionate about finding cures to save the lives of these children. They save as many lives as they can. They save mine. If you're one of the people out there that knew about my cancer diagnosis and prayed for me, sent me a note of encouragement on the blog, sent a letter, or anything like that, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. As always, if you have a story that you'd like to share, let me know. It doesn't have to be as long or involved as this one. It can be short and simple. Sooner or later, I will run out of ideas again. So if you enjoy listening to this podcast, let's tell a story together. No, that's not a threat. It's just some extra motivation. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. I like you. I like me. I like you. I like me. I love you. I love me. You you love you? Mm-hmm. Do you love me? Do you love me? Mm, I love me. But do you love me? But I love me. You love you? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I love you too, but do you love Dada? I love mommy too. Ouch.